Well, thank you very much, Randy. Appreciate it. Hello, Church at the Red Door online community. Day 42. Day 42. I can't imagine. We last met uh, in the first week of March, and it's now been 42 days. That's two days over the wilderness experience. So uh, this is becoming a long, arduous journey for uh, many of us, this quarantine. Uh, so challenging. You know, the other day I was thinking about it. I'm actually, in some ways, uh, becoming like one of my dogs. Uh, Tatum brought home another dog, by the way, so now we have just another street dog that's in our house. And I said, I am exactly like one of these dogs. I roam around the house most of the day looking for food. I'm told I have to stay away from strangers. And sometimes the most exciting part of my day is when, when somebody invites me to go on a car ride. So uh, I don't know, maybe I'm turning into one of our dogs. Maybe I'm one of our street dogs. But anyway, it's uh, ex exciting to be here with you this morning. Uh, we're excited to get back into the text. I'm, we're going to kind of dive back in, as I mentioned on the missive. We're going to dive back into our uh, Exodus template. We're now actually going to engage in battle this morning. So let me just one more time open in prayer, and uh, we'll, just, uh, we'll just invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to each one of our hearts. So Lord, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to be together via uh, uh, virtual reality. It's hard to imagine that that's the case these days, but it is. So, Lord, we thank you for that opportunity. I just pray right now. Lord, I pray for, for Church of the Red Door. I pray for friends who are watching online who may come across this in future days. Lord, I just pray that you would be with them, that you would make your presence known, Lord, that you would uh, manifest your presence to us in very discernible ways uh, over these coming days. Lord, I pray uh, against this virus. I pray that you would eradicate it from the earth that you would teach us, the church, what we are to learn during this time. And, and Lord, spare us. Lord, we're asking for your mercy. We're coming together just praying for not only uh, our church, but for the United States and then even for the globe. So Lord, be with us this morning. Be with us in your word that we might be able to really progress and understand how your kingdom operates. And we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, are you ready for this? Here we go. We're gonna go directly into, back into Joshua. If you remember, we've crossed the Jordan. Uh, we've, we've learned our wilderness experiences. Very few, I think, actually cross the Jordan in many ways. Very few enter the battle. They may know Jesus, may be covered in the blood, may have come out of Egypt, but never really being fruitful in their lives. And that's a tragedy because the most exciting part of following Jesus is moving into fruitfulness, and that's what we're going to see again through this template. How does that happen? What, what does that look like in the spiritual realm? And again, we have this beautiful template to help us understand how we engage in battle that always leads to blessing and fruitfulness. So where we finished off before this kind of whole thing uh, began uh, came down on us, this coronavirus issue, we finished in the end of chapter 5 of Joshua. I want to revisit that and then march on into Jericho this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, grab them, Jericho, uh, excuse me, Joshua chapter 5. We're going to start here uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 12. It says, The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. In other words, they had become self-feeders. They were fed by God in the wilderness, and now the land itself, the battle land itself, was producing for them food. If you'll remember, David had said that the Lord prepares a table for him in the presence of his enemies. And so we have to become 
self-eaters. There's no way we can operate in the spiritual dimension and not know the word. And what is the word? It's the manna here. And Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the manna that has come down from heaven. Okay, so let's go ahead. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn uh, with his sword drawn in his hand and Joshua went to him and said to him are you for us or for our adversaries and he said no rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord uh, we suggested that this could be a pre-incarnate Jesus many theologians believe that that's the case um, and what you see here is that the Lord is not for or against the world. In fact, Jesus would come later and say he came to not judge the world, but to save it. So Jesus is not necessarily for Israel or against someone else. He's giving us a cosmic template to, so that we can understand that Jesus is for the entirety of the world. And that would obviously become more clear later. And it also helps us understand that he wasn't suggesting that Israel was righteous. They had just come out of the wilderness and, and there was a lot of sin and a lot of idolatry. And all those, although these were the children of those idolaters, they were tainted as well. And so again, Jesus is, we're, we get the understanding where Jesus talks about no man is good. And I think that's what's clearly being uh, referred to here. It says, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now that's where we left off. We, it, it had to grab your attention that in fact, this was sounded like a burning bush moment again. Take off your shoes. Where you're standing is holy ground. Why is it holy ground? Because uh, maybe a pre-incarnate Jesus was in that burning bush and now a pre-incarnate Jesus is here again. In other words, Joshua and Moses both knew that they were in the presence of God himself, and yet they didn't die. Exodus 33 says that no man can see the face of God and live, and yet they were bowing. They didn't understand why they hadn't died, and, and yet here was this figure, this captain of the host, this the angel of the Lord uh, figure was there, and, and, and it was impressive. Now, now what, what's also interesting is that Moses, this happened right before Moses was going to do what? Was going to go into enemy territory and see prisoners released. And now I find this interesting, a very similar scenario being repeated with Joshua. He's just about to go into enemy territory. There were seven nations that were going to be dispossessed. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, 1 and 2 says that uh, they were to go in and completely eradicate these seven different nations. Seven is a very important number uh, for, for Jews understanding the number of completion. That's why in Revelation you get, uh, you get this sevens repeated over and over, the, the completion, the number of fulfillment. In other words, they were completely to eradicate this enemy in enemy territory. Seven different nations uh, in this term, Jebusites and Gergesites and all these, uh, various people that were in the land of Canaan during this time. And so, again, they were called to defeat God's enemies and let set captives free. And that's what we're understanding as we do this. When we go into battle, our primary task is to defeat the enemy, no longer people, but spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, and see captives released. That's what we're going to learn. How do we do that? What does that look like 
specifically. And we're going to learn some great lessons here in the Battle of Jericho. So now we finish chapter 5, and now we're going to move right on into chapter 6. Now we have, if you'll remember, we've already seen that Rahab uh, had helped the spies that had come in and spied out the land, and she was going to be one of those people, she and her family, that were saved from their invasion. And how was she going to be saved? That scarlet thread needed to be hung outside of her window, as we addressed a number of weeks back. Again, that scarlet thread of redemption running through all the, the entirety of this Bible is filled with the scarlet thread. We'd already seen it in Egypt. We saw it, uh, you know, by the blood over the doorpost. We had seen it as early as Genesis chapter 3. Already God has killed two animals and wrapped them in these skins, right? I mean, we just get this scarlet thread running throughout the law, running through here. And now again with Rahab, it's just an amazing picture of God saying it's always going to be by the blood that my people are going to be passed over in judgment. So that's where we left it. Now we're going to see the fulfillment of that and many other things here in Joshua chapter 6. So let's begin to read. Joshua chapter 6 says, Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. Now catch this. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I mean this is an amazing thing. See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its valiant warriors. Now wait a minute. We got to look at this. What do you mean? I mean, it's tightly shut. Uh, I gave you a picture. It may even be on the backdrop here uh, of this mounding that went up. And then there was a wall. And you, first of all, you had to scale this mounding that would have been very difficult to uh, march on. And then there was this heavy-duty wall around it. And it was tightly shut. Why would the Lord be saying, see, I've given it to you? I mean, this was not an indication in any way that, well, see, Joshua, I've already given it into your hands. I actually went back this week and really studied out this Hebrew word. It's very interesting. Ra'ah is what this, this word see. And it's more than just see with your physical eyes. In other words, can you see the circumstances on the ground? It kind of denotes more than that. It, it, it denotes uh, a perception, uh, uh, having vision, uh, observing, to discern, to see. He was really saying, can you discern, Joshua, in the spiritual realm? I think that's what God's saying. Can you discern, based upon everything you've walked through and everything you've seen me do, can you discern that this is already, this battle has already been won? I've already given them into your hands. Now, Joshua, with his physical eyes, wouldn't have been able to do that, but with his spiritual eyes, with his spiritual experience of the wilderness, uh, with his training, with his discipleship, as it relates to us, he would have been able to see, hey, this is already a done deal. I mean, why? Because the battle is not ours. It's God's anyway. And, and look, some of you are struggling with Jericho's in your own life right now. You know, you look around and you say, this, this is a city uh, with tightly shut walls. I'll never be able to get into this. And the Lord would say, see, I've already given it to you. I've already given you this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer this in your life. See, it's already done. And some of you, I'm telling you right now that that is the Lord's word to you, given some real challenging situations that many of you are facing. And, and let's move on. Well, how are we going to do that? And the Lord tells him, and it's very instructive for us. He says, you shall do so, excuse me, you shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. Very interesting. You shall do so for six days. 
Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times, and the priests will blow the trumpets, and it shall be when they make a big, long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city is going to fall flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. Now, a lot of things we could begin to pick out here. One of the things that's important is the things that were involved. There were priests involved. There were mighty men of war. Now, we're considered that. If you've been discipled and made it through the wilderness and uh, idolatry has primarily been removed from your life now and, and you're ready, you, you understand the kingdom, you're, 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 word, uh, you're word rich, you're a self-feeder, you're not always dependent upon others, you can actually go and read the Bible yourself and you actually begin to become one of these men or women of war, that's number one. Number two, the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God was always available to them. It was right in the middle of the action. And then interestingly, and I want to talk about this for just one second, uh, the ram's horn. What did that mean? You know, the ram's horn, in fact, I, I actually have one that was given to me. Uh, a ram's horn, this shofar is uh, in, in Hebrew, this, it was a ram's horn that they would go in and they would blow into it very specific moments in Israel's history. Sometimes it would be to denote a, a religious festival, the beginning, or sometimes a, a call to repentance. Or uh, at other times it would be, uh, in the, as is this case, a call into action uh, militarily. And so all these things were places. But there was also a place that they were to call to use the uh, shofar, and that was the beginning of the year of Jubilee. Now, I find that fascinating that they would blow this. What happened during the year of Jubilee? Well, debts were forgiven and slaves were freed. I mean, that's exactly what we're called to do with the gospel. We take the gospel into enemy territory, destroy spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places so that God can forgive sin. People hear the gospel, respond to it. He forgives their sin, and slaves are set free. Again, a picture of uh, the activity uh, that surrounds the blowing of the shofar. Very fascinating. Much more could be said on that, but just understand that this is all very significant for us. This is not just a history lesson in Israel's activities. This is really instructive for us. And so, by the way, we've seen the Ark of the Covenant. It's going to be at the middle of the action, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So let's keep reading. Verse, uh, let's see, verse 6. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, very important that you see that, and let seven priests, seven always the number of fulfillment, carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward. March around the city, let the, now catch this, let the armed men go on before the ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the, then the rear guard, rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. Now, I find this very fascinating. I'm going to give you my take on this. And some might say, well, you're reading too much into the text. I don't think so. I think this is really, really instructive for us. And I'm going to give you, I think what this is doing 
and the order in which it was given gives us a picture of the fullness of the body of Christ. Let me explain. So it was the armed men that were to go first. So they move in first. Who are the armed men in terms of giftedness as it relates to the body of Christ? Where they're the sent ones. They're the apostles, first ones in. The evangelists, those who come into dark places and announce, you know, the gospel, begin to build friendships. They're typically these kinds of people are very good networkers. They're good with people. They're, they're not afraid to, to, to make a stand, to say things. They have a lot of courage in terms of a, a social interaction. They're really armed. They, they know the word. They know the gospel. They're able to come in first. So that was number one. The armed men go in. And then secondly, you have the, the priests, and they were, they were responsible for taking the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the, as we said last week, the very heartbeat of the church, of the temple. We're the temple, the church, the very heartbeat. It, it, our heart, in fact, is the Ark of the Covenant. And I would say, in some ways, these are the pastors and the teachers who come in. They have the what? What was in the Ark? What's in the hearts of pastors and teachers? Usually the manna, the very Word of God. Uh, the law written on their hearts. Jeremiah 31 had prophesied this. And also just that resurrection message, you know, the, the constant preaching of the death, the burial, the shedding of the blood uh, through the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus. And that's at the centerpiece of what God is sending in to uh, go into battle. So you've got your evangelists, this is how I see it, your evangelists, your apostles, and then after that comes the Ark of the Covenant, and all the things are in the heart, should be in all of our hearts, but especially pastors and teachers and those who are responsible for that and then come and i want to talk specifically to you this morning about this then come the rear guard now here's my take again and I, I i'm not dogmatic about this but i think it's i think it's helpful for us what who are the rear guard well they're the faithful ones they're the ones the the servant-hearted ones those who they'll give through generosity and and the ones who just get up and do the same thing. Gifts of mercy and charity and, and love and compassion. I mean, the rear guard is so important in the body of Christ. They kind of come in last. Sometimes they're not as recognizable as the first ones in or the ones that are like myself who kind of are in front of people all the time. But boy, they are the rear guard. They're the very force, uh, uh, the powerful force within the body of Christ. And I think that's what we see. Listen to what Proverbs says, Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a faithful or trustworthy man? I mean, this rear guard I look for, I've got to tell you, the church at the Red Door is filled with a rear guard that is so powerful. People who intercede for this very message. People are praying for this message. People who uh, uh, serve and never, ever are, no, you may not be aware of them, they, they're so play such a powerful role in the body of Christ and the local church and then the church church universal. It's incredible. It's uh, it's unimaginable how significant a role they play. I I think back about just the those people in the Bible. You may or may some of them you know, but some of them maybe not so well if you're not that familiar with your Bible. Each one of these uh, folks was called faithful, trustworthy, faithful. I think of Silas and and Onesimus, and Tychicus, and Timothy, and Epaphras, and even Moses himself, the New Testament says, and he was found faithful. Faithful people who are just there every day. 
not the kind of person that comes in and then is gone for a while and then comes back in. And if you need to get something done, you look for your rear guard. And they play a very significant role in terms of defeating the enemy. And that's how I see the rear guard. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. Again, uh, Paul himself is just saying we're looking for faithfulness. And when I see this, I see faithfulness across the board here. The evangelists going in, the apostles sent into different regions and planting new churches and all those kinds of things. Those who follow them with the Ark of the Covenant and a resurrection message and all these things at the heartbeat and know the word, the pastors and teachers and others like that. And then lastly, this rear guard, the amazing gifts that have been given throughout the body of Christ that all together working as one fighting unit, again, our battle, Paul says over and over, we go in and we see the enemy defeated. Again, not a physical people, but spiritual forces. So let's continue on here. But Joshua commanded the people saying, you shall not shout nor let your voice be heard nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day that I tell you, shout. And then you shall shout. So let's stop for a second. Now let's think about this. What, what, what have they been told so far? The particular order they're to go in. Again, I think a picture of the body of Christ. Uh, they're to go in and walk around for six days, one time, and then on the last day, they're to go in and walk around seven times and waiting. You know, one of the things I get from this is wait. Don't, don't let your voice be heard yet. There's a moment and a time to speak. That can be on an individual relationship. Maybe you have children or grandchildren. There's a moment in which you may just be marching around. That may be prayer or a season of just... Uh, loving someone or whatever it is. And it's not until the moment that God opens the door that you're to, in this case, kind of shout. You don't have to literally shout, but there's a moment at which God is appointed that maybe your grandkids or your kids or a friend or a close family member in some way, uh, then at that moment, you may or may not be the one to share the gospel with them in a powerful way, in a very meaningful way where they come to know the Lord and where the enemy is defeated in their life. You, you don't know what that looks like. But the point is, it's one step at a time, constantly being sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, God, through the Spirit, is speaking here to Joshua and said, do it this way. And remember, we've talked about this at length. Patterns are always different. You know, sometimes it may be this way, sometimes to the left, sometimes to the right. You never know how this is actually going to work out we're always needing to be sensitive to his voice. Now, verse 12 says, Now Joshua rose early in the morning. The priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, and they went on continually and blew the trumpets, and the armed men went up before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, and they did so for six days. Now, can you imagine? I mean, let's just stop for a second. I mean, here they are that, you know, here's this seemingly impenetrable force up high, you know, raised up high on this mound and these thick walls and everything. And, and, and now they're going to go in and take them. And maybe they did have the numbers in their own mind. Maybe they thought, okay, we can do this because we've got more people than they have. Uh, we'll see next week that that's numbers are really insignificant as it relates to this. 
But, and now they're told, rather than just go in and just take it, why? What, are, what is the purpose here? I mean, they could, you could have done the pro and con list, and I, I don't know, other than, well, God said do it this way, I could have come up with a million reasons why that, that's a strange way to do this. Why are we waiting? Why don't we just go? What if we run out of food out here? What? Waiting is one of the most challenging things to do, folks, when you've got a Jericho. Let me say that again. When you've got a Jericho in your life, and you find yourself, wow, I, I, I just don't see how this thing's going to come down. you, you got to realize that that waiting process, whatever God tells you to do during that waiting process, is important. And I think we see that right here, how significant that is. Now verse 15. Then on the seventh day they rose early in the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. Now, it just did you read that? It, let me read that again. On the seventh day, they arose early at the dawning of the day, marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. Now, was that a copy mistake or what's going on? No, actually, you see that a lot in Scripture. Uh, in the Old Testament, you'll often see uh, something stated and then directly right after it repeated again as if, well, didn't you hear me? And that's often used as a point, uh, and when you're trying to read your Bible, if it says that, it's not a copy mistake, it's repetition that points to significance and provides a point of emphasis. It's really important that you understand that because that happens often in the Old Testament as you read. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, okay, now shout, now's the moment. For the Lord has given you the city, and the city shall be under the ban. It is... Uh, a it and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban. We'll see next week. That was unfortunately not the case for everybody. What a challenge that brought to the nation. So that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. They were well warned as to what God was instructing. Look, God gives us instructions sometimes, and we say, I just don't understand that. I, 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 understand, I think I understand better. We read something in the Bible and go, well, that doesn't make sense. I don't know that I need to apply that to my life. Can I just tell you, a crosser, someone who's crossed the Jordan and entered in, knows that his or her well-being, spiritually speaking, is utterly dependent upon their ability to hear the voice of the Lord and then obey it. And so even though they may not have understood this, it was significant for them. And and so, and so then verse 19, it says, but all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord and they shall be uh, go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead and the they took the city and they utterly destroyed everything in the city. They thought, again next week, both man and woman, young and old, ox, sheep, donkey with the edge of the sword. Again, you've got to understand, I know this, is, uh, this confronts our sense of justice. I mean, how can you do that with man, woman, child, beast? I mean, it seems so unreasonable. Well, first of all, two things. It was a landmark. It was a place that God brought down his wrath in time, in humanity. Now, you can be offended by that, but I believe he showed us in his, as an example that he is serious about uh, sin and serious about the
the future reality of his kingdom being without sin, number one. Number two, we're also very fortunate that he only did it in this case. Uh, many of you say, well, I can't believe this, and yet you would have been the first one to say, well, why isn't God intervening in Auschwitz or Dachau or uh, during Hitler's reign of terror? What, where's God in all this? Why doesn't he come down and wipe the, this evil off the planet? Uh, so we, we can't find, you know, many people try to ride both sides of the fences, both an accusation against God for bringing this historically uh, at this time, what appears to be just a genocide, and yet at the same time, when evil occurs, people are like, well, where's God? I don't understand. But I think even more importantly, what God is instructing us through this is that we need to eradicate every form of evil when we encounter it. Again, I'll refer back, as I've many times, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're, we're, we're destroying speculations and philosophies and everything that raises itself up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive. We've referred to that numerous times. Again, it's important to understand both those things are true. God is demonstrating his holiness and his willingness to oppose sin while at the same time giving us a template to walk by. And so Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. Now, what's interesting is that's exact again exactly what happened with Moses. Uh, not only were the Israelite the Hebrews brought out of Egypt, but uh, they took many possessions with them, and their families all came as well. So you have a similar kind of a scenario being repeated. I think God wants us to be very aware that this is also our task. We're following in the footsteps of a Moses. It's Christ, but then we're following in the footsteps of Joshua to cross the Jordan. We're now following in in those footsteps to what? Pronounce that debts can be uh, relieved and, and forgiven and that slaves can be freed. I mean, that's our task as the church. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all she had. They also brought out her, uh, uh, all of her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel and they burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. Why? Again, because of the blood. In this case, it wasn't literal blood. It was the scarlet thread in a, a picture being typifying of the blood. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. In other words, she believed in their God and she acted on what was in front of her. Uh, the same as every follower of God has through the centuries. We, we hear the word, we, we see God's power, and we believe into him through Jesus, and we hang the scarlet thread outside of our door, and, and we're spared. We're passed over in judgment. It's a beautiful picture, again, of God's redemptive plan through the cross. Very important to see. And then lastly, Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds the city of Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Now, what's fascinating about this story is that now God very specifically, you know, nobody, Joshua, nobody can rebuild this city. Once this is torn down, once the enemy's stronghold is torn down, don't rebuild it. In fact, It'll cost you the firstborn if you try to rebuild the city. Interestingly enough, that happened a few hundred years later 
uh, during the reign of King Ahab, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34, and, and in, in his days, Kiel, the Bethlehite, built Jericho. He laid its foundations, how? With the loss of Abiram. Who was that? His firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So hundreds of years later, I mean, here he comes, and and what happens is Kiel says, I'm going to rebuild Jericho. I'm going to rebuild what was built. Now, why is that important? Well, it, it, was, it happened, number one, as just as God said it would. God always fulfills his word. But it's instructive for us, too. It's important that we don't go in and then tear to have things torn down, either in our lives individually or or in through battle, tearing down strongholds in other people's lives and see people come to faith. And then we begin to rebuild the very enemy ground that we were involved in tearing down. I mean, uh, it's unbelievable how that happens. Listen to the scripture, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. I mean, that's our task. So they went in, in a figurative type, they went in and destroyed the works of the devil. But then listen to this, Galatians 2.18. Say, for instance, let me give you an example. So let's say we, we go in and, and there are people captive, captive in religion. Okay, so they think, they imagine that if I'll just live this kind of moral life, uh, many religions are based on your ability to live a moral life through the law of some sorts, wherever they derive that, the moral law in some way, that if I'll do that, then I get to God. Well, we come in with the gospel and say, you can't do that. You can't live under the law. Uh, through the law, no man will be made righteous. We quote the scripture. But what if then we go back in and rebuild that? Well, that's exactly what kind of Peter had started to do. He kind of uh, started back into the law again, and he was confronted uh, by Paul. But listen to what Paul says in Galatians 2.18. If I rebuild what I have already torn down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, what Paul is saying is, we came in to destroy the idea that somehow you could be right with God by just being a, a good moral character, by, by being a good person. We, we destroyed that. We, we put that to rest. Why would we ever rebuild that? And Paul says, I don't want to rebuild that. I, that's what I get out of this. I, I, when it says don't rebuild it, God's, again, what doing this for our instruction. Don't rebuild what's already, God has already torn down or what? Uh, through the battle of, through the last 2,000 years, the church has fought many battles. Why would I be rebuild something where that battle's already been won? We're not under the law for righteousness sake. For, for righteousness sake. We're not under the law anymore. Don't rebuild that. Don't rebuild that. Don't rebuild that. That's Paul's admonition to us, even in the 21st century. Okay, so uh, let's, as we start to wind this down, let's talk about what are some of the lessons that we can pick up from this. Well, number one, I would say uh, anytime we're called into battle, we've got to recognize uh, you can clearly see God was doing this to show them, and it's not because of their might or their power. The battle is actually God's battle. We see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It says, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. Why? For the battle is not yours, but God. So as you fast forward into Israel's history under the kings, again, God, same refrain. God, this isn't your battle. 
This is my battle. Just do what I say. Some of you have taken on some battles and you imagine somehow that they're your battle. Somehow it's going to be your intelligence or your ability to you know, connect with the right people or your ability to overcome this. There are a lot of things in my life that I'm praying about. And one of the things I always have to remember is that I am, the reason I'm praying to God is because he has the power and the resources to win this battle on my behalf. I'm going to do this through prayer. The battle is the Lord's. That's one thing. And I think the Lord was showing them that in the this battle of Jericho by making them do something that made no sense in the flesh, march around six days and then seven day and blow these trumpets. I mean, what is this ever going to accomplish? Well, well, there are many things that God tells me to do something. And I said, well, I don't understand that. Well, I'm going to need to know basis. And when he speaks, I need to act. So I understand the battle's his, not me or my great ingenious ideas or, or those kinds of things. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, if we get this picture uh, of being called into battle. We need to be part of the people, again, that have the Ark of the Covenant at the center. Now, we've talked about this. What does this mean? Well, we've got to be rooted in the Word. You know, Colossians 2 says, Therefore, you have received Jesus. Walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Got at the center of this, in our hearts, we have to be rooted in the Word. We have to be rooted in our faith. I've said it over and over. It's one of the very purposes for Church at the Red Door, that we can actually know the Word, learn the Bible. Not just hear stories, learn the Bible so that you can efficiently wield that sword. And then secondly, the resurrection power was in the center of this. Remember that rod, Aaron's rod that had butted a picture, in my view, of the resurrection was in that ark. That has to be in our hearts at the very center of the church. The very center, the heartbeat of the church has to be resurrection. Why? Romans 6 verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Look, folks, we have to have the resurrection life of Jesus flowing through us, first to trickle, then up to the ankles and the knees, like we talked about with the temple. We, we cannot give out what we do not possess. It has to be at the very center. And that's, again, a beautiful picture that God gives us. At the center of this fighting force was the Ark of the Covenant. And then, of course, lastly, our idols have to re be removed. Uh, there were no idolatry in the temple, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, they had tried to set something up. God was very angry later on in their history. God was very angry that these idols had been set up in the very temple of God. We've talked about that at length. Many of you have said, wow, I feel like some of my idols are being removed during this quarantine time and all this. It's really been a fight. We'll recognize that if idolatry still exists, we'll talk about this next week, and not only do you pay a great price for it, but the entire body of Christ pays a great price for it. Uh, the fighting team cannot have idolatry. So that's what we find. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus pass these tests? What were some of these tests? Well, some of these tests were uh, dependence. That's what we're learning. Are you dependent upon the voice of the Lord? You know, Jesus was clearly, utterly dependent upon the Father. He said, I do nothing unless I see the Father doing it first. Now, what's interesting about this Isaiah, 700 years in advance, 
indicated, it's a little bit nuanced, but he gives us a picture of Jesus, this Messiah who would come that we know to be Jesus. And he said this about him, uh, Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. That means the Davidic line, which Jesus did come down through the Davidic line. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All picturing Jesus, but here, catch this. He will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Again, it's exactly what Jesus is saying about himself. He's claiming to be this figure, this righteous branch that comes forth from the root of Jesse. What's it saying? He's not going to be doing his own thing. Well, as my idea. Jesus is going to subject himself to the Father, being fully man and fully God, but fully man, subject himself to be to the Father, and he's only going to do what he sees the Father doing. He's only going to be speaking words that he hears the Father speaking. Now, folks, that is dependence. And obviously, the Ark of the Covenant was in his heart. We know that. That's clear. I mean, I mean, his very resurrection. He is the resurrection in the life. Now, now the question is, it's so from Jesus, he 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 lived out this battle plan, total dependence on the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, the center of his heart. How about the apostles? How about them? Uh, dependence? You know, there's a story in Acts chapter 10. I won't, I won't read it all to you, but Peter is there as a function of time. Peter is in uh, Joppa, now modern-day Tel Aviv, and he's, he, you know about this as Acts chapter 10. He's having this kind of vision, middle of the day, and then this voice comes, and, and uh, remember, he's filled with the Holy Spirit now. This voice comes and says, Peter, rise and eat, and all these kinds of things. It's very interesting. And, and then it says something else happens, and then, but he hears this voice, and, and then it says it's the Spirit speaking to him. Now, Cornelius does not yet have the Holy Spirit, and so Cornelius is north, and the Spirit can't just speak to him. It's the angel that speaks to Cornelius and says, go down and find this guy, uh, Simon. He's staying with a, this tanner down in Joppa, and, uh, and go get him. So God was communicating to, to Cornelius, but he was doing it through an angel, and God is communicating through his Spirit to Peter. Very interesting. And what does Peter do? Well, at first he doesn't understand it, but once God makes it clear, he immediately is dependent and obeys. Now, everything in his body told him, don't go up there to these Gentiles. Don't have anything to do. The law tells him. He still didn't quite understand how this was all going to go down. He thought the Messiah was just for Israel. He didn't understand it was going to go to the ends of the earth, to the nations. He would very effectively understand that later. But was he dependent upon the Spirit? Yeah, the Spirit says, you know, go up and follow these men. The Bible's very clear. Uh, just heard the Spirit and reacted to it. Uh, in fact, in verse 19 of chapter 10, it says, While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, accompany them without misgivings, for I've sent them myself. So Peter now has the Holy Spirit. God's speaking to him through the Spirit. Is he dependent upon the voice? Of course he is. He goes directly there, even though he can't possibly imagine how this is going to work out to his benefit or to the kingdom's benefit. These are the, the dirty Gentiles. The, we don't have anything to do with these Gentiles. Fascinating. And then did the apostles have the Ark of the Covenant? Of course they did. They were constantly preaching the resurrection, and they had the word so deeply embedded into their hearts 
that we are here today, you are here as a function of this message, because of the apostles. So if Moses walked in this way, if Joshua walked in this way, dependence, and he was shown how to do that through dependence and having the Ark of the Covenant right at the heartbeat of things, if Jesus, same thing, utterly dependent as the prophet Isaiah had seen, utterly dependent upon the voice of the Lord, utterly, of course, the Ark of the Covenant right in the middle of his heart, he was the manna, he was the resurrection. Uh, the law was written on his heart as well. Uh, so all of that Jesus walked into, if that was the pattern for Jesus, if that was the pattern for the apostles, the, their utter dependence on the Spirit, and then the Ark of the Covenant, and the preaching of the resurrection, and the word hidden in their heart, well, of course, we're here because of that. If that was true for Moses, and Joshua, and then Jesus, and then the apostles, should it not be true for us? Of course it is. So what are our lessons from Jericho? Well, I would suggest to you that it's utter dependence and the Ark of the Covenant in our heart. Lord, we have, if the Church of the Red Door is going to walk into the fullness of our calling, folks, it is absolutely mandatory that we walk as a unified body with the evangelist and teaching and the rear guard and, and we're sensitive, all of us as a church, sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit to know when to shout and when to refrain and when to press forward with generosity and giving. Maybe now's the time. Maybe, you know, we're about $800,000 away from the ability to purchase this land. Or maybe we wait a little longer. I don't know, but we're, get, we're listening. Are you listening to the voice? Do you have those Jerichos in your life that you need to listen to? Is that what the Lord is saying to you today? You know, in closing, a lot of people think, well, it's just ridiculous. You know, this is just some mythological fairy tale. Can I tell you, uh, this last year, Jericho is a very unique place in Israel. It's actually in a place called the West Bank. Very often, people don't even go into the West Bank. You may have visited Israel, but not gone into the West Bank and actually visited this site uh, because it's, uh, it's different. You have to go into a little bit different kind of area. We did this uh, with some of you about a year and a half ago. And we went to Jericho, and I've been there. And uh, archaeologically, you say, well, I don't know if I can believe in all this. Can I just tell you that when the Bible speaks uh, about the walls of Jericho finding, uh, falling down, uh, let me just tell you, archaeologically and every other thing, it's validated by what's being found over there. Catch this. The original Hebrew wording carries the idea that the walls falling below themselves uh, this is consistent with the design of the, uh, the glacis since the outer wall would probably be a mud brick wall sitting atop the stone retaining wall. Thus, if the outer wall was toppled, it would fall below to the base of the retaining wall. A little bit of what that picture I gave you not too long, uh, just, uh, that was up on your screen should be is that, that picture of a, a mound. It wasn't actually Jericho. It was something similar to it. But what Jericho would have looked like, a big mound and then the wall sitting up, and they're finding this to be true. During uh, early archaeological excavations by the British archaeologist uh, Kathleen Kenyon, a stone retaining wall was found at the base of the tell associated with Jericho, but a mud brick wall wasn't found. However, a deposit of collapsed mud brick was found at the base uh, at certain locations around the tell. This is surprisingly consistent with the account in the book of Joshua. 
This collapsed wall would have created a, a ramp for the Israelite warriors to march up the embankment to take the city. In this way, the record makes the biblical, biblical account surprisingly believable. Many people mock this story for a long time, but not anymore. It supports the idea that the walls tumbled below themselves. Uh, again, so that word uh, in the Hebrew is nafal, and takath uh, uh, is the, the two words to fall below, and it means to fall down again below themselves. So it did, not just the walls came tumbling down, but the walls came down, and then the walls actually fell down below where they originally were, and we get pictures of that through this uh, archaeological study. And they go on to say, and they did find in this area, this area of Jericho, a portion of the wall that did not come down. Now, that's amazing. Why would that be? All, the, all of it fell down except for a portion of the wall. Well, where, would, where was that portion of the wall? Well, the poorest in the city would live out on the very edges. And obviously, there's for natural reasons. And then the wealthier would live more on the inner city. Where do you think, if, if Rahab would have been a harlot, she would have lived out near the outer wall there. I, I'm telling you right now that the portion of that wall in Jericho they found that was undisturbed, that just small portion of one, one part of the outer wall, I guarantee you folks that would have been where Rahab and her family lived. And what happened? They were preserved, both where they were and then their entire family and their possessions were preserved. So is this a great follow-up message to the resurrection life? We have been uh, passed over in judgment. We are, we are part of Rahab's lineage as the Bible goes on to say, you know, we're, she was one of the faithful that went before us. And now we're walking right into the same kind of template uh, that she was able to give us and help us understand. So anyway, I hope this has been helpful for you. Again, day 42, I, you know, well, maybe it'll be day 49 next week we meet. 42 days I haven't been able to see you. We as a collective team haven't been able to hug one another and see you. And we just hate it. And yet... Let's continue to strive forward, become men and women of the word, and trust that the Lord will do extraordinary things in our lives, even through this challenging time. We love you, Church of the Red Door. Have a wonderful week, and God bless you.